James Spear. James, thank you so much, man. Thank you. Wow. Woo! As, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if you know the original version of that song. He does it better than John Hyatt, and that's going some. That's impressive. How many of y'all know who John Hyatt is? Let me see a show of hands. Eligible for leadership at Lake Hills Church. The rest of y'all I don't know about. Man, it's great to be with you this morning. How are you today? Good. Good, 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 good. Yeah, I love that song, particularly that line in there where it says, when your secret heart cannot speak so easily, come here, darling, from a whisper start, to have a little faith in me. I think that line actually reminds me of the game that we played when we were kids. Do you remember hide and go seek? 
How many of y'all play, remember, how many, let me ask you a question. How many of you have played hide and go seek in the last year? Let me see a show of hands. Isn't that crazy? Look at all the grown-ups playing hide and go seek. I love hide and go seek. I think hide and go seek is one of the greatest games ever invented. But there's a really ironic twist to hide and go seek. And if you're kind of, this is going somewhere, I promise you, just stick with me for a second. To me, hide and go seek is ironic because the better you play it, the less you play it. You know what I'm talking about? Let me, let me give you an example. When I was a kid, I remember one particular game of hide and go seek. I was playing with my brothers who were younger, and they actually still are younger than me, but we were playing, some of y'all get that at lunch. We were playing hide and go seek, and I kind of decided on this particular game that I was going to take my hide and go seek game to the HNL. You know what I'm talking about? That whole nother level. And I decided rather than going to the usual hiding places in the bushes or behind the garage, under the car, in the garage, I was going where no man had gone before. I was going to just completely blow the box wide open and I was going to go hide inside. But not only was I going to go hide inside, I was going to go into the bathroom that I shared with my brothers and hide in the dirty clothes hamper. And so that's what I did. I went inside and I, I pulled all those nasty boy dirty clothes down on top of me and I kind of curled up in a fetal position. And you know, when you start hiding for hide and go seek, you try to count down with whoever is it, that particular game, so you know when the search will actually begin and you've only got a certain amount of time to hide. And I just kind of curled up in there and I thought, man, I am about to dominate this game of hide and go seek. And sure enough, I sat there for what seemed like an eternity and never heard anybody come looking for me. Finally, I started to hear voices coming down the hallway, and I could hear my brothers arguing with each other. You can't go inside. Yes, you can. No, you can't. It's against the rules. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Back and forth. He wouldn't have gone inside, and they started looking through my bedroom and in the closet, going through their bedroom. They came into the bathroom, and I heard the door slam open. I'm like, and they never once looked in the dirty clothes hamper. And to my little eight-year-old self, I thought, I own them. <laughs> and so I sat there again for a long, long time. And I thought, and I just sat there and I thought, finally, they're never going to find me. And so I crawled out of my dirty clothes cocoon. And I went back outside and I had my hands on. I said, I just owned you. I dominated you. And I had to go seek. And they went, Dude, we've played like five games since then. Shut up. Come on, let's play some more. You see, the better you play, the less you play. Now, hide-and-go-seek, obviously, is a great kid's game. But I don't think that we ever completely grow out of hide-and-go-seek as adults. I think there's something inside of us, every one of us, that has to deal with this hide-and-go-seek dynamic in our lives. What I mean is this. There's a portion of all of us that is part of the human condition to seek out relationship, to, to know and to be known, even to love and to be loved. That's part of the mark of a healthy human being. But at the same time that we're seeking to know and be known and loved and be loved, there's also a part of us that likes to hide part of our lives. There's Parts of our lives that we like to kind of keep hidden off and closeted from the rest of the world. We don't want other people to know everything about us. And 
fact of the matter is, even with those who are closest to us, if we're not really careful, we can kind of develop some hidden areas, some roped off sections of our lives that remain secret, that remain hidden from those people. And the fact of the matter is, if we're not very, very careful, if we're not very deliberate, those secrets in our lives can become monster icebergs that wreck not only our lives personally, but also relationships and the potential for relationships in every single sector of our lives. So when we started to look at this series, Icebergs, we felt like secrets would be a massive iceberg that we need to address. We need to talk about very, very directly because it goes back to the beginning of human history. Go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. God creates humanity on the sixth day of creation, male and female. In the image of God, he created them both. And he gave them everything that they would ever need for the fulfillment of his dream, of his vision for humanity. He gave them intimacy and relationship with himself. He gave them all of the opportunity to work and to find fulfillment in their work, to find rest and enjoyment in creation and in the natural order. But then comes Genesis chapter number 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we find sin entering the world. Sin or brokenness enters the world. God had told them, you can have anything you want in the garden. There's one tree I need you to stay away from for your good. But everything else is open season. Knock yourself out. And you and I, without even necessarily having to know the story, you know how the story goes. Somebody tells you, don't do that. What's the one thing you want to do? If I told you, do not, do not enjoy church today, some of you would be like, I'm doing it. I don't care what he says. I'm enjoying church. Come here. That's just kind of in our nature, that forbidden fruit syndrome. And so Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation. Sin and brokenness entered this world, and, and the consequences continue through to this day. But I think the initial consequence is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3 in what I believe may be the most tragic verse in the entire Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says this, after Adam and Eve had openly defied God's will, after they had sinned against God with one another, look at what happens. In verse 8, the Bible says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Isn't that terrible? I mean, that, that is tragic. Of all of the responses to a God who loved them perfectly and unconditionally, to hide from God. And I think we all understand what that's like to one degree or another, to hide, if not entirely, then we try to maybe hide certain parts of our lives. We try to hurt, hide certain areas or maybe even seasons from the past, from God and from other people. You know, I've shared this story with you before, but it so perfectly illustrates this moment. I remember when I was about four years old, there, we were, I lived in Houston, Texas, and one of those Gulf Coast thunderstorms came through where the whole day is shot. You can't go outside as a kid. And as a result, I had been inside in my room all day and 
Over the course of the day, I had begun to kind of find out where every single thing in my room was, and I closed the door because I was destroying the room. All of my toys, all of my clothes were out in the middle of the room, and, and I was reaching in my closet for the very last game or toy that I had to inspect that day when I heard the door to my room open, and my mom was coming in, and even at four years old, you know when you're about to be busted. You, you know when it's about to be game over, and as I was reaching for that last toy or game on the shelf in my closet my mom came into the closet doorway and she folded her arms like this you how many of you ever had your mom fold her arms on you you know what I'm talking about and before she could even say a word at four years old I looked at her and I said don't come don't tell me things I would love to tell you that's the last time that ever happened in my life, but I've tried to do that with God before. Don't come, don't tell me things, or with other people who have tried to intercede in my life or who have tried to be accountability for me. I've, don't come, don't tell me things. We all understand what that's like, but it's ultimately an echo from Genesis chapter 3 where people hid from God. Secrets can be incredibly damaging. Now, we're going to talk in a little while. I want to talk to you about how to know who to share secrets with. But what we're talking about when we talk about iceberg secrets, we're talking about those things in our lives that we keep hidden away that can damage us and or other people in our lives, that can damage relationship quotient, that can damage intimacy, that can damage our own spiritual relationship with God or our own ability to interact with other people. And I want to just mention to you four things to be aware of that are kind of secret agents. Though those things that can work very secretly but very insidiously, very cancerously in our lives. The first one may be traumatic events from our past. You may have something in your past, a wound or a scar that was inflicted upon you. Maybe even a season of life. For some of us, it may be college is a traumatic event from the past. That season where we just kind of repeatedly made dumb decision after dumb decision. But as I said, it may be something that was done to us. A deep wound, a deep scarring from our past. And we try to keep those secret. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to process it. We don't want to deal with it. And so we just keep it hidden away, a traumatic event. Second secret agent to be aware of is substance abuse. Substance abuse. Anytime we use a chemical a prescription, a non-prescription, alcohol as a numbing agent. Anything that we do, quote-unquote, to take the edge off. And we don't like anybody to say, well, you have a problem, or, you know what, maybe you need to quit doing that as much, or maybe you're an addict. And so rather than deal with those things, we keep it secret. We keep it hidden away. And this is something that is so prevalent in our world today, something that so many people do because it just kind of seems harmless. We get home in the evening and we take the edge off or maybe we got a prescription for something at one point, but we've kind of developed a dependency upon that or at least a really, really close relationship with it. And in fact, we're using it to numb us. We're using it sometimes to numb from a traumatic experience or we're just using it to escape our current reality. That's a secret iceberg. The third secret agent. And I almost made this the whole sermon because it's so prevalent, but I'm 
not going to, but it's huge in our world, pornography. Pornography is a secret iceberg. Now, it's interesting to me that we decided and prayed about and thought about doing this series, Iceberg, months ago. Months ago, we began preparing for this. We began praying about it. And as it happens, we're doing this message on secrets and iceberg secrets, secret icebergs, on January 25th, the last Sunday in January. Which, if you'll notice by your calendar, you may want to take out your phone and see this, the last weekend in January precedes the first weekend in February. (laughs) And what happens every single February without fail? The Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue comes out. Don't act like you didn't know about it. Every single February, because I've been looking at this, I've been looking at this date on the calendar, I've known about this date on the calendar since I was in the second grade. Second grade, a close family friend of ours gave me a subscription to Sports Illustrated. Roger Staubach, Nolan Ryan, the Chicago Cubs, on and on and on. But then that first February 1972, I go to the mailbox. I come back in, I go, Mom, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. It's a sport. I'll never forget my mom going, I'm going to kill him, the guy who had given me this. He didn't know that that was coming. And some people say, well, Mac, you know, you're being a little prudish here. I mean, it's a swimsuit issue. I like the articles. (laughs) Well, let's think about the word pornography. Pornography just means this. Porneia in the original Greek, which means sexual immorality. That means anything outside of God's original intent. And then graphy means picture, pornography, sexual immorality, pictures. Pornography is in the heart of the beholder. Pornography is in the heart of the beholder. And so it comes down to what do we do with those pictures in our minds, in our lives? I don't think it's accidental either that we're talking about pornography just before a major mainstream motion picture release from a series of books that I've heard a lot of people have read. And this is coming out mainstream. This is not some little seedy theater that you have to go to under the dark of night with a trench coat and a hat on so nobody sees you. I'm talking, of course, about Fifty Shades of Grey. But let me be very, very clear. This is not a gray area. Do you see what I did there? This is not a victimless crime. Pornography destroys the hearts and the minds of the consumers, the victims, and everybody they have a relationship with. It is a $57 billion a year industry. And you can partake in it from the comfort and secrecy of your very home. I'm telling you this, again, not because I'm being prudish, but because I love you. Pornography cuts new channels of thought and wiring in the brain of those who partake in it. And people who say innocently, well, we just wanted to spice things up. We're not being dirty. We're married. We're spicing things up. That is a lie from the pit of hell. 
Don't believe it, don't buy into it, and don't agree to it. Because it causes you to think, and the same thing that happens with drugs and alcohol happens with pornography, which is this. What worked to excite you the day before is going to take more the day after. It's the law of diminishing returns. What causes an alcoholic to catch the buzz today will require more tomorrow. And it's the same thing for the person who consumes pornography. It is insidious. It is cancerous. It is not a victimless crime. Now, do not walk out of here and go, well, that church believes God's anti-sex. You know, if you're going to procreate, I guess that's okay. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. God, write this down. God is pro-sex. Somebody ought to shout amen. God is pro-sex. He created sex. He made us as sexual beings, as I've said before. It's not like God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden with no clothes on, and then looked down and went, they're doing what? He knew we would be physically attracted to each other. But he's called us to celebrate the gift. He's called us to enjoy the gift. He's called us to share the gift and to cherish and guard and protect the gift within the context of covenant marriage. One man one woman, one life. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, the Apostle Paul said, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I'm talking about Jesus and his church. So when a husband and wife come together physically, they're preaching a sermon. Somebody shout amen. amen. The sermon is... The character and personality of God. There are parts of that personality that are decidedly male and masculine. Other parts that are decidedly female and feminine. But together, we get a more accurate representation and picture of who God is. And pornography taints and tarnishes the image of God as well as what it looks like in our lives lived out. It's an iceberg. Pornography. Number four, this is a big one too, social media relationships. Social media relationships that are kept secret. Recently, divorce attorneys across the United States were surveyed and they reported social media as a deciding factor, not the only, but a deciding factor in divorce in more than half the cases of divorce in our country. A little high school romance, romance rekindled, remance, that's a good word. It's a remance. It's a bad idea, but it's a good word. A romance rekindled, oh, no, 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 we, we work together, we're friends on Facebook. But if it's secret, then it's damaging that relationship. It's damaging what God wants to do in your heart and in your life. Now, how do you know if a secret is a good secret or a bad secret? Because let's be honest, there are there's some things in my life that I share only with Julie, my wife. She, she is my confidant, my soulmate. The two are one flesh. Those are, those are good secrets, but some of them 
can be negative. You, you, can, you can measure your secrets by this, the secrets and the damage done. If a secret feeds shame, you know which category it goes in. If you feel ashamed because of something you're keeping secret, because of something you're keeping hidden, shame is never a tool of God, not one time. Damaging secrets hinder intimacy. They come between you and the people closest to you. Damaging secrets fuel fiction more than reality. They fuel fiction more than reality. That's one of the great damages of pornography. Is it's a fictional relationship. Which, by the way, interestingly enough, requires nothing from you. Pornography is a coward's relationship because you don't have to risk anything. You, you don't have to be vulnerable. You don't have to pay attention to anybody. It, it, is a, it is complete fantasy. In a real relationship with real intimacy, you actually have to pay attention to each other. You might want to write that down. That's significant. And then damaging secrets isolate us. Anything that isolates us and pulls us away from the people closest to us, the people that we trust the most, the people who love us the most, if it isolates us, then you know it's a damaging secret. Now, I've said before, and you've heard many times, all roads lead to the gospel. All roads lead to the gospel. How in the world do we apply the gospel? How do we make the gospel relevant when we're talking about secrets? Part of what I want us to do as a church is to learn how the gospel applies everywhere so that we develop the muscle memory that we start looking for those points of application. We start looking for those ways that we can put it to work and make it relevant Monday through Saturday and not just when we show up on the weekends. And to get at this, I want to share with this with you from Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews 4, the Bible gives us a roadmap for how to handle these iceberg secrets. Verse 12 in Hebrews 4 says, The Word of God, the Bible, Scripture, is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit. It, it penetrates our lives between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. The word of God is alive and powerful. It exposes our lives. It, it lays it out before God and those people closest to us. Here's the gospel goal as it relates to secretness, to secrets. The gospel goal is open-heartedness. To be a person of an open heart, a full-hearted person. Now that does not mean that we share everything with everybody. You know, if you fill out one of those icebreaker cards and you're looking to get involved in the life of a church, of our church, do not walk into your first life group meeting where you've never met the people and go, my mom didn't hug me enough. That's a little too much, okay? But you've got to do it in a, in an relationship age appropriate manner and every relationship is dinner that different that's why did you see what I just did there every relationship is dinner <laughs> it's 
See, that's my own personal issue that I have to deal with and process through. <laughs> but the gospel goal is open-heartedness. How do we get there? Hebrews 4 just told us. First of all, apply Scripture. Apply Scripture to every part of your life. If it can withstand the light of God's Word, then you can know that that's a healthy secret. We have a standing rule in our household, particularly between husband and wife. There are no secrets, unless you're planning a surprise party for me. <laughs> then you can keep that a secret. There is no room for that. You apply scripture. The second thing, and this is very important, tell someone. Tell someone. If you have a damaging secret, tell someone. It might be a Christian counselor. It might be a mentor in the faith, somebody who's a little farther along than you are, somebody that you trust implicitly, who you know loves God more than they love you whom you know has your best interest at heart and you know will hold you accountable. First time I ever heard about accountability, I was in high school. I'll never forget, my friend Gary Peel and I looked each other in the eye and said, we'll be accountability partners. Worst accountability partner in the whole universe. He's now a pastor in Tennessee, great guy. But we were terrible accountability partners because he would tell me something he needed help on or accountability. I go, man, me too, that's terrible, that's awful. That's not a good accountability partner. Now, accountability flows out of relationship, flows out of trust. You've got to have an affinity and a trust with each other. But you've got to have accountability in your life. But let me say this very, very clearly. In our world, a lot of people talk about transparency. I want to encourage you in the grace and the wisdom of God to be genuine with everybody and transparent with a precious few. Be genuine with everybody, but transparent with a precious few. With Julie, I'm transparent. No secrets. Not always fun, not always convenient, but it always works. There are men in my life with whom I am openly transparent. They can look at my bank account, they can look at my computer browser. They can look at any part and ask me any question, carte blanche, any moment of my life. Now, I'm genuine with everybody. I, if I see you this week, you know, getting a Texas honey ham breakfast taco, hypothetically, I'm the same there as I am up here. But I'm transparent with a precious few people whom I know love God more than they love me, and who also I know have my best interest at heart. And sometimes my best interest means they're going to tell me things I don't want to hear, but I need to hear. I've never bought into this institutionalized accountability where you get a group of people together in a room and go, okay, Fred, you and Ralph, accountability partners. Doesn't work that way because you're only as accountable as you want to be. And you only want to be accountable to people you trust and people you love and people who trust you and who love you. Now, Hebrews is not quite done. Verses 14 through 16. So then, 
Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, this is Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Can I just summarize that for you real quick? No hiding. Before Jesus, no hiding. So because of grace... We approach Jesus by grace. We've been forgiven. We can come into his presence boldly approaching the throne. But we also approach Jesus for grace. You see, grace is both defense and offense. It is defense against our sin and our secrets and our brokenness. We need grace for those things. We get that. But it is also grace offensively. Grace for when we are tested. For when we need help, grace, (laughs) grace is amazing. Grace. We come before the throne of God boldly, not because we deserve it or because we're entitled to it. No. We, We don't go to God and say, God, I need a little help here. We say, God. By your grace, I approach you because you have provided the means and the vehicle through which I can approach your throne boldly in grace. I need you. God, I've got this secret over here, and and I need help to process it. I need your wisdom. I need maybe some counseling, maybe just a close friend to walk through it with me, but God, I need your grace because I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to hide and then go seek and seek and then go hide and I'm tired. Have you ever noticed that secrets wear you out? Secrets will exhaust you. I think it's because of the exhaustive power of secrets that Jesus said, come unto him, all who need rest. Because his grace is that amazing. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what secrets or secret you're carrying or what you brought in here with you, but I do know Jesus is bigger than any secret you've got. I do know that his death, burial, and resurrection covers over every secret, no matter the size of the iceberg, and that it is absolutely amazing enough to allow that secret to come into the light and to be processed. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment.
And in this moment, I want to invite you to consider your life, not just your secrets, but every part of your life, and to really and truly answer the question, have I accepted and responded to Jesus' grace initiative? Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we have this great high priest, this one who intercedes for us named Jesus. And that in his grace, we can approach God himself. We can have relationship with God. No matter the secret, no matter the sin. Because grace is sufficient. Now listen, I know some, probably somebody in this room or maybe watching online, you're thinking, man, you don't know my secret. And you're right, I don't. But I do know that the Bible says where sin abounds, where sin grows, grace abounds all the more. Your sin never outgrows the grace of Jesus. So if you want to live in that grace, if you want to partake of that relationship, then we want to give you the opportunity to start right here, right now. It's absolutely a forever thing, an eternal thing. But it's also a right here, right now thing. Every day. If you'd like to begin that, then I want to invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. Just pray, talking to Jesus, and just silently say in your own words, just say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I, I want, I need your grace. You know my sin. You know my deepest, darkest secret. And you love me still. And so, Jesus, I accept your grace. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again for me. And so right here, right now, in exchange for your life, I give you mine, once and for all. Jesus, thank you. ask you to remain in a spirit of prayer for just a moment and you know we, we bow our heads, we close our eyes because it's a sacred moment when God's moving when God's moving in somebody's life but I want to say especially to those of you who just prayed that prayer maybe for the first time in your life and you meant it it's important that you make sure you know this is the most important moment of your life. It's the biggest moment. And it's a moment that you need to, to mark 
to kind of stamp indelibly in your mind and in your heart because it's real. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you just prayed that prayer, I want to ask you if you would just raise your hand, just silently but unmistakably, if you just raise your hand up high over your head and hold it there for just a second as you stamp this moment in time, this moment in eternity. Because it's a big deal. And as a church, we want to be a family of faith to you. We want to help any way we can in this new relationship with God. So we first of all want to celebrate that with you. As you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.